Well, I tell everybody all the time is that they need to stop thinking about cyberspace as just a place to email grandma and to go look at movies online. Like this is a battlefield environment and it's the only battlefield in the history of man where every nation, every human is engaged at the same time. Normally, battlefields are far removed from humans that aren't engaged. In cyberspace, the moment you turn in and Wi-Fi up, you're on that battlefield. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artist of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artist of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Navy Chief Cryptologist with nearly two decades of experience in cyber forensic and analytic operations. He holds both a PhD and master's in computer science from Colorado Technical University and a bachelor's from American Military University focused on counterterrorism operations in cyberspace. His deep technical expertise, advanced education, and operational experience has helped senior technology executives with their plans to leverage comprehensive security controls and a variety of standards, frameworks, and tools to enable secure business operations. He's rightfully recognized as an innovative cybersecurity leader with real-world knowledge of how to do cybersecurity right. He holds six patents and has been quoted in more than 150 publications across a variety of media and has been named one of Security Magazine's most influential people in security for 2019. So please, help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Cyber Warfare, Truths, Tactics, and Strategies, Dr. Chase Cunningham. Dr. Cunningham, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I really, really appreciate having you here. Hey, thank you for having me. That was a, that was a great intro. Couldn't have done better myself. Hey, so talk to us a bit about your professional journey, how you first heard of cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and kind of what drew you into that field. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm one of those just kind of lucky fools, I guess you would say, because I actually joined the Navy as a diesel mechanic. Uh, I was not a person doing computer or anything. I was literally working on engines and uh, just through luck and uh, some really good leaders happened to see a talent that I had and, and they uh, pushed me towards IT. And um, I happened to be really interested in not just IT, but also in intelligence operations. And those two at the time that I was doing all this back in the late 90s, uh, it kind of became a uh, workforce, a role uh, specifically. We called it uh, cryptologic technician was what it was. Uh, and as that kind of evolved, that was just where my career path led me. So why I say I'm a, a lucky fool, I could have just as easily continued on being a diesel mechanic. Um, but because of just, uh, you know, blessings and uh, leadership, I happened to wind up in a different career field that was better suited for me. That's awesome, Matty. Yeah, I just like a right, a nudge in, in, in a direction that just led you down to path to go ahead and get that PhD and really go deep into it, man. That's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, and 
I just uh, for the, the for the the education side of it, I've just always been uh, lucky that I'm self motivated, and um, you know, I just took the chance of, of uh, the government offered me money because I was military, and I was like, well, you guys got your money out of me, I'm going to get mine out of you. So every dollar they had, I put it in education. There you go, man. Hey, so for our listeners out there, including me, who might not be familiar with it, can you define what cyber warfare and cybersecurity are? So cyber warfare is using electronic means or medium to conduct warfare tactics and operations against enemy combatants. Now, a lot of times people would say nation state versus nation state, that type of thing. Cyber warfare is way broader than that. Anytime that you or another entity is engaged in trying to gain an advantage on an adversary via electronic means, you're essentially engaging in cyber warfare. Now, cybersecurity is really about securing infrastructures to combat cyber warfare tactics and operations. So are you able to kind of talk to us about the work that you're doing at Forrester? Yeah, so what I do at Forrester is I lead the Zero Trust research there. And, and uh, if, you've, if you've heard about the Zero Trust sort of uh, movement that's going on as far as cybersecurity strategies, it's, it's really been taking the practical side of uh, engaging in better security, not just expense in depth and not just compliance chasing and really aligning capabilities and tactics and strategies to get towards a state of zero trust. So that's really interesting. So I'm curious what the working relationship is like between you and the data scientists. Like, you know, what's the overlap between cyber warfare, cybersecurity with data science and machine learning? How do you guys impact each other's work? So there's a big growth in machine learning and cybersecurity and cyberspace in general because there's so much value that comes from being able to mine through all the data that we look at. If you if you really wrap your head around just how much information a cybersecurity analyst or warfare analyst has to get through, we use ML, we use intelligence, we use data mining to make that all possible for us. And that's where there's this intersection going on between data security, data mining, analytics, and cyber. Where do you see kind of your field of cybersecurity, cyber warfare headed in like the next two to five years? And how do you see data science and machine learning making an impact in that field uh, as well over the next two to five years? Yeah, so uh, cyber cybersecurity in the cyberspace really is going to continue to evolve to be as critical to uh, business and national operations as, as anything else, healthcare or economics or whatever. Like you can't do anything anymore because we live digitally without digital security. So that's going to be even bigger. Uh, and then on the data security and intelligence and analytics side of this, it's going to continue to get bigger, better, faster because there will be more. I mean, if you think about it in the space of uh, less than a decade, we've gone from less than 100 million devices online to over 3 billion. So the only way to crawl through that is with analytics and with data and machine learning. What are some of the concerns, biggest concerns in cyber warfare that we'll face both kind of at an individual user level and at the organizational level over the next two to five years? Well, I tell everybody all the time is that they need to stop thinking about cyberspace as just a place to email grandma and to go look at movies online. Like this is a battlefield environment and it's the only battlefield in the history of man where every nation, every human is engaged at the same time. Normally, battlefields are far removed from humans that aren't engaged. In cyberspace, the moment you turn in and Wi-Fi up, you're on that battlefield. So you have to think about it in in that manner to to be safe. Uh, And where this is going nationally is, I mean, we're already seeing a lot of this stuff. And I I hate to sound like I told you so, but I I wrote about a bunch of these types of scenarios in my book about using social media to influence narratives and sort of twist 
people's way of thinking. And that's exactly what's happening in the United States right now with a lot of these Twitter accounts and fake bots and all these things that are pushing uh, the protest and whatever else. That's really interesting. And I've never thought about it that way, that the cyberspace is just a giant battlefield. That's really interesting. And I was fortunate enough to actually get a, a copy of your book and I was able to thumb through it a little bit. Um, and I'd love to get into to some of the book if you don't mind. So I was wondering if you could first kind of talk to us about what a hacker is and how different they are in real life compared to how they've been portrayed in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you watch, you know, the movies and, and talk about hackers, it's always the the unbathed guy living in his mom's basement with a hoodie on drinking Red Bull or whatever, and, and he's programming away on code. That's just not how it is. Hackers and exploitation folks and cyber warfare operators are extremely professional. They are run by organizations. They are paid nice salaries. Uh, they they uh, are publicly sort of uh, noted. Um, people know who they are. Uh, and they, they're out there because they're doing a job that is uh, needed. Uh, and it's, it's every race, every gender, every nationality. Uh, this, this, is, this is one of the great things about this space is it is ripe for growth. This is actually the only space in the world right now that has a negative unemployment rate. Can we talk about a little bit about how hacking has evolved over, over time? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really a great point to make because it used to be that to be a, a hacker, you had to have deep computer science skills, you had to know how to program and really be able to build things from the ground up. Well, over the last decade, it's become commoditized. And now, if you're able to use YouTube and go on you know, Twitter, you can pretty much figure out how to do exploitation operations. Now, you might not be good enough at it, you won't get caught for doing illegal stuff, but you can... You can pop a machine if you can spend a little bit of time online. And it's, it's the difference between, this is back to the warfare scenario of a long, long time ago, the only people that fought in combat were uh, Spartans, right, with extreme training and, and were built for it. And then as warfare become more commoditized, anybody that could pick up a weapon became a potential combatant. And that's where we are now. There's like the, the old adage where you... You train more today, so you bleed less in the mm -hmm. battlefield. Can you draw a parallel to that, to cyber warfare, cybersecurity? What can we do now to train more so that when, when that wartime comes, we're, we're bleeding less? Yeah, that's, that's where folks need to really adapt their training scenarios. And it, it actually drives me nuts because I consult on these all the time of don't just check boxes and don't do the basics for, you know, cyber warfare, cybersecurity training, because that's not what the bad guys will do. The last time I actually did a red team event on an organization that had just had cybersecurity training, uh, they finished it 36 hours before we showed up and we ran our op and we got uh, admin access into the network in under 40 minutes. I mean, because they weren't ready for the way that we were going to go about it. And the point there is you've got to be willing to expose your workforce to the realities of how exploitation occurs, not just something that comes off of a PowerPoint you know, and a don't click this link thing. And so how can machine learning help detect or prevent these hacking incidents from occurring? Well, the only way that we can actually respond now because of the speed and scale that's going on. And I mean, if you think about one user, right, on average, each user has three, uh, three different devices at any one time. They have an average of 90 accounts at any one time. The math there gets really big when you consider how many people are online. The only way to have the capability to respond at scale is with analytics and with machine learning to power that. I know a lot of my audience um, loves to do kind of personal projects on the side. Like, do you have any suggestions for how they can get up to, to speed on maybe, you know, creating like a, a personal project 
involving machine learning with, with cybersecurity? I think one of the things that they uh, would, you know, be wise to look at is just follow some of the stuff on like PeerList, which is P-W-E-R-L-Y-S-T. There's a whole bunch of different scenarios that are kind of in there. And for those machine learning folks, they could basically come up with different ways to use uh, algorithms and mathematics to combat how those operations take place. And uh, a lot of times people think that exploitation is this super nuanced, very specialized skill set. It's not. There's only a few things you can do to a machine to cause a hack. So figure out how to defend that with your mathematics and your algorithms. Are you able to divulge into what a few of those things are? Is that is that too? Uh, well, I mean, if you really look at it, I mean, uh, so if you look at most exploitation occurs because of a bad password and username, right? That's usually an easy avenue of ac- of access. So if you want to write a machine learning model that basically calls through uh, currently compromised uh, usernames and passwords and compares them to people's usernames and passwords in an organization and say, everyone that has this particular character set, your likelihood of compromise is 95%. Go change your password now. Um, You could come up with something like that. Awesome. Yeah, that's a a great idea for a project. Uh, So in your book, you mentioned something called the cyber shot heard around the world. Could Mm -hmm. you just... Can you describe that for us and and the impact that that's had on modern cybersecurity? Yeah, so that was uh, basically the uh, Natanz nuclear uh, hack that occurred. It's called, uh, everyone's pretty familiar with it as far as basically the, the NSA had an operation going on, and this is all public domain now, where they were trying to get access to the uh, uranium enrichment centrifuges within Natanz. And they ran an op and they got in there and that that accomplished their mission. However, the problem was because of the internet, that tool that was used leaked out um, and it, it became a publicly available, essentially tactical nuclear weapon. Uh, and that, that was a, a really bad day when that, when that happened. But the reason that's the cyber shot heard around the world was that was the first public, uh, uh, publicly known act activity where a nation state conducted a cyber activity that caused kinetic outcomes on another nation state. Can you, can you describe that a little bit further? Uh, what do you mean by kinetic outcomes? So most of the time in, in electronics warfare, you're usually trying to like modify signals or, or get access or just cause degradation of a system or whatever. Well, the moment that you go and you cause a physical component, in this case, a centrifuge to no longer work because parts of it actually failed, you've caused a kinetic activity. In other words, something that exists in the physical space no longer is operational. Ah, interesting. And you know, that event, what, what has that done to modern cybersecurity? What's the, what's the downstream impact that that's had? Well, it's number one, that, that tool has become publicly available. So everyone on the planet has had access to this, you know, national level uh, exploitation tool. And number two, it's really made it where people are more aware of like, oh my gosh, even countries that spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on security can fail if any one thing is wrong. So can you talk to us a bit about the, the concept of, of a perimeter-based security model? Uh, what is that? So perimeter-based security model is the, the old model of security where you think you can build a really big sort of firewall. And if you have enough checks on what's coming in and out, you probably can keep the adversary out of your system or network. That has proven itself to be categorically ineffective. Um, if, if perimeter-based security had worked, it wouldn't, we wouldn't have had all the breaches we've had for the last 20 years. So the, the, the strategy, the concept of perimeter-based security 
uh, in theory makes sense, but in practice is not actually effective. So what would be a better alternative to a perimeter-based security? That's where uh, you get into the, the stuff around zero trust. That's where in my book, I actually wrote about strategy that's called edge and entity security, which is where you're approaching security uh, with a micro perimeter around each individual entity. That's your edge. And each individual asset has its own controls built into it, which is way more granular, but is uh, much more effective. Question for you here. I was reading through your book and I saw the section about cybersecurity and autonomous vehicles. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, what does cybersecurity have to do with autonomous vehicles? Yeah, so the autonomous vehicles are really great. I mean, I think that they're a sea change in how we do things, you know, uh, writ large. But people need to remember that those autonomous vehicles are running based on sensors and algorithms and a whole bunch of applications that are, you know, controlling those. And any one of those can be potentially flawed or compromised. And if you do that, it's a really bad day if you have a, uh, uh, an autonomous 18-wheeler decide that it wants to go the wrong way down a highway. Yeah, definitely, definitely bad, bad day for everybody on the road. Have there been any actual instances where, where there's been like a cybersecurity attack on an autonomous vehicle? Um, have you heard of anything like that occurring? So there was a few guys a couple of years ago that that basically showed that they could modify uh, the uh, Jeep uh, as it was driving on the road. They could turn the brakes on or off. They could uh, have it uh, make left and right turns. They did it as well on another GM vehicle. Um, and Tesla's had a few instances of not necessarily like hack type compromises, but just flaws in the logic that have caused people to die. Um, so it's, it's happened. It's, uh, and I mean, it's, it's not, it's not even likely that someone can argue like, oh, that's not possible. These are applications. These are computers. They just happen to be applications, computers stuck to a vehicle. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. So let's talk a little bit now about cybersecurity, social media, and and how AI can be used maliciously in this context. Uh, can you mind? Do you mind uh, kind of describing that for us? Yeah. Well, the biggest one that's most currently uh, noted is the use of deep fakes, which is modifying video and audio to make it look like someone is either acting or doing or saying things that they're not actually doing and make it believable. There was the great Key and Peele video that came out where he was talking like President Obama. There's been a bunch of like Nicolas Cage and Donald Trump videos that are pretty hilarious that are, uh, you know, along those lines. But the, the reality of that is, is those machine learning models and the AI behind them are getting better. So those videos are becoming harder and harder to determine if they're real. And if you could imagine, um, you know, being a social media icon or someone with, you know, hundreds of millions of followers and spewing out something really nasty that looks realistic, you could potentially incite a riot. 
So what can we do kind of on the individual level? Like how do we guard ourselves from being tricked by these deep fakes? Is there anything that we could, we can do? I think the one of the, the most uh, simple things that people need to do is ask themselves like, well, what is the outcome from this particular thing? If the goal of these type of activities is to incite an emotional response, and if something is actually making you feel like emotionally you need to respond to it, then the question should become like, well, why is that happening? Is this, is this really something that uh, I think is uh, accurate or is this potentially fake and it's just trying to goad me into a fight? We're talking about the, the kinetic responses. Like, so would this kind of fall into that category where we have some manipulation of, of you know, AI machine learning models doing these deep fakes, eliciting an emotional response in human? Would that fall into that kind of category as a kinetic response? Well, I mean, it potentially could if you, I mean, you know, right now with all the tension going on across the United States, I mean, if somebody put together a really good deep fake that had some really nasty comments coming out about it and put it on the right account aimed at the right uh, group of people and it went viral, I mean, you could, people could literally lose their lives over something like that because, uh, I mean, it kicks off and then people emotionally respond and they walk out the door with a baseball bat in their hand ready to go take someone to task and it gets real bad real quick. I think that's kind of a, a warning for how AI and machine learning can be used to, you know, weaponize facts, video sounds. Um, I'm curious how AI can be used to weaponize biometrics. You uh, brought this up in your book. Would you mind speaking to that point? Yeah. So there was a couple of projects. Uh, one was called Master Prints, where basically the idea was, uh, could they take an image of someone's fingerprint and use uh, ML to create a replicative image and then have that pass a biometric? And it did. And it did it like 99.97% of the time. Uh, so the, the reality of uh, what's going on with biometrics is biometrics are great. I think biometrics are the future of authentication. However, um, if you don't guard your biometrics, someone can come up with a way to create fakes that will pass biometric scanners. That's pretty scary. Um, so you also mentioned in your book that this concept of cyber warfare campaign, which I thought to be pretty interesting and you know not something that that I typically think about. Um, would you mind kind of discussing that concept, kind of explaining what that is and maybe some of the categories of cyber warfare cam campaigns? Yeah, so I, I broke it down with, um, I mean, my particular position on it, that there's a, a lot of different campaign types out there. It could be intellectual property theft. It could be exploitation. It could be, uh, you know, sort of a variety of other things. And, and what we're trying to get across to folks is to remember that in warfare, which is what is going on in cyberspace, is that there is usually an outcome that they're aiming at. And whatever that outcome is, is what that campaign is trying to get to. It may be gaining intellectual property, it may be a foothold, it may be something else, but you don't do warfare for the sake of warfare, in other words. You do warfare so that you can gain an advantage. What are some of these societal impacts that are possible thanks to, you know, these innovations, deep fakes, machine learning, AI, and, and cloud computing? I mean, on the good side, there's lots of benefits that we see from those types of, you know, solutions. Uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. Amazon wouldn't work like it does if we didn't have really good machine learning. I mean, that, the logistics alone, they're powered by ML. But uh, on, the, on the negative side, you know, and I remind people of this all the time, is that it, it's something that can be manipulated to cause hate, discontent, civil strife, um, potentially uh, war, like physical war, those type of things. And it's, 
it's because of the speed and scale with which these things operate and the fact that human beings uh, are actually hardwired to respond emotionally before we think. Um, so that's a problem for us as people. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that amygdala part of our brain, right? That we're Well, and we're actually hardwired too, to, to react more uh, readily and more violently to uh, video stimulus than we are text-based. So in other words, really? that's why, yeah, that's why if I put a video out that looks realistic, it will cause a lot more problems than if I write a paper that incites hate speech. Your, your brain is actually 90 or excuse me, 70% of your brain is hardwired to process visual information. And that goes all the way back to evolution where when you were running around the Serengeti and you saw a lion coming out of the, the trees, you saw that movement and you moved so you didn't become a lunch. You know, we've been hardwired for that. And on the far side of it, because we take in all that visual information, it takes you less than a tenth of a second to make a decision based on visual information. So think about how many times you've seen something on a screen and it's caused you to tear up or to, you know, whatever. If I had written that down on a piece of paper, same scene, it would have taken you a lot longer to have that emotional response. It's really fascinating. What can we learn from observing these past physical warfare actions as part of the cyber spectrum? And I'm taking this quote directly from your book, this question you had, because I thought it was a fascinating question. I mean, I think what we need to learn is that uh, the, the, we're operating in a, in a great time of innovation. Like the future of humanity is, is changing literally by the month almost based on technology. But what we need to remember is that for every good, you know, because there's an equal, there's an equilibrium, there's also a potential negative. So paying attention to that and not necessarily running off to shove the next cool, sexy thing into population before we know or even think about what the, the negative side of that might be is a problem. So you had this interesting uh, section in your book, what happens when data and AI studies go awry? So would you mind helping us kind of think about that so that we as data scientists can can be more kind of diligent and thoughtful in our use yeah. of data and AI. So this was a great example of, of uh, well-intentioned research that could have potentially been very malignant had it gone the wrong way. And, and what it was, was a group of researchers said, you know, we have a theory that we could look at a bunch of images of folks that are either hetero or homosexual, and we'll let the AI train itself and we'll see if it can identify one person versus another based on their image. And their image wasn't ever very good. It never got above about the 60% threshold. And the problem that you have there is the system was tagging people that either were or weren't homo or heterosexual as being one or the other. And if you can imagine, if that gets out in the wrong hands, it can get really bad really quickly. So what can we do to kind of prevent these types of biases from happening with our models. Do you have any tips or suggestions for, you know, up and coming data scientists out there so that they can be more cognizant of using technology in this way? I tell them to really be careful that, uh, to use the, the, you know, the term is the juice worth the squeeze. In other words, is the benefit that you might get out of this nifty, cool research going to be so great for, you know, the outcome that it's worth the potential negative side of, of the aspect. I mean, and, you know, people forget like nuclear power was also what caused nuclear weapons, right? I mean, that was that way they were researching splitting the atom and then they went, oh, we can also make this go boom. Um, it's the same sort of problem that you might have in this particular scenario. And, and AI and ML is great, but AI and ML also is a problem of speed and scale. And speed and scale can be okay until it gets away from you. 
Some very very good advice, very practical advice as well. What what do you think would be the equivalent of you know the nuclear bomb for 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 cyber warfare, cyber security? I mean, I think the the worst case scenario that I see, and it's not um, you know hacking a dam or whatever. I think that a lot of critical infrastructures been taken pretty seriously. But for me, and this is why I wrote about it, is it's really about um, leading people to make wrong decisions based on faulty information. And, you know, inciting that emotional response from people, because that's what danger, that's where there is danger, um, is when people don't think. You've got six patents that are credited to you. Which one is your favorite one? Uh, probably the one that we did about um, uh, being able to detect if something is uh, causing uh, an exploitation op against a virtual machine uh, without knowing that the, there, was a, there was a piece of malware. So basically looking at how the system was doing its thing. And then if you see these anomalies, you go, oh, that must be bad, and you shut it down. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. And of these patents that you've... uh, develop the six of them, which one do you think is going to be the most relevant to our current times? I think that one is probably the most current and most applicable because some of the other patents that I had are, are a little screwball um, just because I, you know, patented stuff for the sake of <laughs> patenting it. Uh, you know, I, I did some stuff for my PhD that I wound up with a patent on and that type of thing. So um, I, I think the uh, securing virtual systems is probably the most applicable. So speaking of securing virtual systems, why should we kill the password? Well, if you look at, uh, I'm I'm big on, that's why I said in my, I call my booth, uh, my booth, my book, uh, Truth, Tactics and Strategies. If you look at the truth, um, people think that hacking and exploitation is this like super amazing malware thingy that AIs itself into a network and, you know, logic bombs or whatever. It's not. the largest area for exploitation in history is bad usernames and passwords. So if you can get rid of those, then you reduce a mega sized area of compromise. What would be the alternative to passwords? Is it uh, just not- yeah, it's where we're kind of at right now with where you see biometrics and out of band authentication. Like, I, I mean, I still think that we'll have passwords, but just like right now, like when I log into my, uh, my surface book, it looks at my face it prompts me for 2FA on my phone and then I hit a button and I log in, but I don't enter chase at, you know, uh, cyber.com and then password one and enter. So we've got last question here before we jump into a quick lightning round. Uh, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? Uh, I think the, the most important thing is really just take your time and, and think before you do something. Uh, think whether it's reacting or building a product or, uh, anything that you do, I think a lot of times people get lost in um, the this thing of like, I can do this and that's probably good, but you should still sit back and go, if, even if I can do this, should, should I do this because it might have a n- negative outcome? All right on. So let's go ahead and jump into lightning round. What is your cybersecurity superpower? <laughs> probably uh, being very practical. I think that's probably my superpower. It's a very good superpower for like any aspect of life. This is being practical. I like it, man. So what's the number one book 
fiction, nonfiction, or one of each that you would recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Uh, well, my favorite uh, fiction book is probably Pet Cemetery by Stephen King because I just love those type of books. Um, and my favorite nonfiction is uh, probably Man's Search for Meaning, um, which is a great book to read anytime you get the chance. Yeah, Victor Frank Hale's Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, definitely a very good book. Um, psychological prison, right? That's yeah. Quite. So if you could put a billboard anywhere, what would it say and why? You're transiting a live fire battlefield environment. Are you prepared? And then why would, why would you have that as a billboard? Just to continually remind people of, you know, they need to think differently because I, you know, I, I want folks to understand the space in which they operate. If we could somehow get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 20 year old Chase, what would you tell him? I tell him, take your time, uh, have some patience uh, and look for uh, look for opportunities um, and also, you know, be willing to uh, uh, take the guidance that folks give you. I was pretty hard headed when I was younger. <laughs> so so what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I ever received was from my grandfather who said you have uh, two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. Oh, I absolutely love that. Absolutely love that advice. So what motivates you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm motivated just because I like to compete with myself. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those folks that like, I'm, I'm good on a team. Like I'm okay with teams. I'm not, I'm not really a team sport person, but I'm good on a, a you know, a working team, but I'm motivated by um, wanting to do better than what I did yesterday. And it's not against, it's not anybody else. It's all just, I like to compete with me. Absolutely love that, man. Uh, just continual self-improvement, continuously just doing whatever it is that you've got to do to be a better person, whether that's, you know, reading books, working out, just whatever it is, just do better than you were doing yesterday. I absolutely love that mentality. What song do you currently have on repeat? Uh, actually, right now, it's probably Fast Hand by Cody Jinks. <laughs> all right. Definitely have to check that out. So how can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Uh, so definitely you can find me on the book on amazon.com. Just look for Chase Cunningham. I'm the, the one on there that's got cyber. Uh, as far as everything else, I'm on Twitter with uh, at C-Y-N-J-A Chase, C-H-A-S-E-C. And then I'm on LinkedIn, uh, just Chase Cunningham. I'm the only Chase Cunningham with a cartoon avatar. Yeah, it's a pretty badass cartoon avatar as well. Uh, so Dr. Cunningham, thank you so, so much for taking time at your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Man. That was great talking to you. I really, really appreciate you uh, letting me on your show. 